Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans 12, Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking at a passage there. We want everybody to be able to look along with us in the Bible. So these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. And that Bible is marked at Romans 12, so you can get to that passage readily. Romans 12. Parents and coaches and educators spend a lot of time and energy and money trying to help children gain a healthy view of themselves. We all want our children and our grandchildren to be successful, and since there is a correlation between high self-esteem and success in life, a few decades ago we started to instill high self-esteem in all our kids. So students began to learn at school that they are special and magnificent and awesome to boost their self-esteem. And it worked, sort of. Studies show that children who were consistently praised felt better about themselves. But more recently, researchers have observed that it often actually backfires because the children become dependent on the praise of others for their self-image. And when that praise does not come, they feel bad about themselves. And worse, if they're subjected to criticism, They can't handle it at all. So lately, self-esteem advocates have promoted a different approach to this. Instead of what they call character esteem, which focuses on who the child is, you are terrific, you are special, you are magnificent, you're awesome, they suggest we focus on what they call process esteem, praising kids for their effort. So instead of you're really smart when a child does well on a test, for example, it's you really put a lot of effort into that or you really worked hard. But even process esteem has its limits. And even when the process of working hard and exerting effort results in extraordinary success. Some of you may remember the tennis star Boris Becker. At one time, he was on top of the tennis world. And yet, he was on, at the same time, the brink of suicide. Here's what he says. I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. And Becker is not the only one to feel that sense of emptiness. The echoes of a hollow life pervade our culture. One doesn't have to read many contemporary biographies to find that same frustration and disappointment. Jack Higgins, the successful novelist, was asked what he would like to have known as a boy. And his answer was this. I would like to have known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. So how should we think of ourselves? And how should we teach our children to think of themselves? And how does that affect the way that we behave? The passage we're going to consider today tells us that those answers are all connected to the gospel. Now let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word and see the answers to these questions in the gospel. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather It is you who have allowed us together. 
we would not be here if your spirit had not moved on our hearts to motivate us to desire to be in a place that apart from you, none of us would want to be. We want to be here because of you. And we are healthy enough to be here only because you have given us life and breath and everything else. We have the freedom to meet here without fear because of you. And so, Lord, thank you for allowing us the privilege of meeting. And then help us, each of us, to take advantage of this sacred time then. To think, to put aside the cares of the world with which we came into this room. To clear our minds and focus them upon you and the truth of your word. And as a result, may we leave here better equipped to bring glory to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now we have been for several weeks in a series, the title of which you see on the screen, Life in the Father's House. And we've done so at the beginning of this year because I wanted to take several weeks, starting 2016, to remind us as to what the Bible says about what the church is to be and what the church is to do. And we've noted that the word church in the Bible means a called out group, the called out ones. And so each message in this series has been titled The Call to Something. And so we started with uh, the call to uh, holiness and the call to truth and the call to mission. And we've seen the call to relationship now beginning last week and today we have a second part in the call to relationship, and we'll have a few more weeks on that theme as well. Now, I said that how we think of ourselves and how that affects our behavior is connected to the gospel. Now, why do I say that? It's because Romans chapter 12 starts a new section of the book of Romans. Romans, like many of the books in the latter portion of your Bible, has two major sections. The first section teaches us about who we are in Christ And then the second section teaches us about what we are to do in light of who we are. Now that Romans is about the gospel and about who we are in Christ is made clear in the very first chapter of this book. Paul, who wrote Romans, says there in verse 15 of chapter 1, I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And then the next verse says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And then the verse after that mentions it yet again. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the very first chapter sets the theme of the entire book. And then the next ten and a half chapters give the fullest explanation of the gospel that we have in the entire Bible. That explanation of the gospel the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that explanation begins with the very, very bad news. And it starts in chapter 1 and verse 18, saying that the wrath of God abides on all humanity. And the reason that God is angry with the highest of his creatures is because in the words of chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That sin has rendered us much worse than any of us think of ourselves. Sin has affected, chapter 3 teaches, every part of us. The way we think, the way we talk, and the way we act. But the good news is, God has undertaken on our behalf. Though our sin has made it impossible for any of us to please God in and of ourselves. 
It's made it impossible for any of us to assuage the anger of God toward us because of our sin. God has come to earth and he's lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve. God's anger at sin was poured out on Jesus at the cross. And when then, as chapter 10 says, we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved. We are rescued. We're delivered from our sin and from its eternal consequence. The anger of God is appeased and we can now live in a relationship with him, a relationship that radically changes us and changes the trajectory of our lives. So chapter 12 begins this way. Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. That is, therefore, because of all the stuff that's just been said now in these 11 chapters, in view of all that's been said about our sin and its consequences, but Christ's work on our behalf In his life and his death has made this difference. I urge you, therefore, in view of that mercy, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And verse two says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now here, at this pivotal point in the book of Romans, one commentator says, what God has given to us gives way to what we are to give to God. The first 11 chapters are all about what God has given to us. And now chapters 12 through 16 are going to be about what we, in return, are to give to God. And the foundational change that is made in an individual when he or she becomes a Christian is, according to verse 2, in the way we think. We're to be renewed, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's why I say in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out, it's in your program. I encourage you to take that out. And I say, first of all, and I've got three major points there. I'm not sure that we'll get to number three today. But the first one is this. Christians think differently. Christians think differently. Verse two says that the ongoing transformation that's taking place in the Christian happens because their minds are being renewed. That is, we no longer think the way we used to. But now we think in ways consistent with the truth that we've been taught about God, about ourselves, and about others. You see, friends, before becoming a Christian, we didn't think correctly. Chapter 1 says that our thinking was futile. It says in chapter 1 that we did not like to think about God and we did not see life in relation to God. And as a result of separating God from our experience, prior to coming to Christ, nothing was viewed accurately. Everything was distorted. But now having come to Christ and being given his Holy Spirit to guide our thinking, we see things clearly. Now notice the facts are all the same. When you come to Jesus, your circumstances may not change at all. 
I mean, all the difficult stuff may still be going on in your life. (laughs) In fact, when you come to Jesus, it might get more difficult. You say, yippee, sign me up for that. So it's not that the facts change. The facts are the same facts. But the way you look at them is radically, radically different. We see the facts in an entirely different way. We see God differently. Because now he is first. And so, in the words of verse 1, we give our bodies to him. We see our circumstances differently. We see that God is doing something for us in difficulty, not something to us. And so, in the words of chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. This difference in our thinking about God affects how we see what happens to us. Because our transformed minds put us in our proper place. Put us in our proper place. And what is that proper place? Well, we think differently about ourselves. Not only about God, but about ourselves. In fact, I say Christians think differently, but I say in your outline as well, Christians think differently differently about themselves. And verse 3 tells us that. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, that may sound familiar to you if you were here last week. Because I said last week that Christians view themselves accurately. And we saw that as one of the major points from, from Galatians chapter, chapter 5. And so this simply underscores how important is and how often given this theme in the Bible. And so you see it in several places. And that's because, as one commentator says, despite all the warnings our culture gives about the danger of low self-esteem, the real danger is self-centeredness and egocentricity. Most of the world's religions have identified humanity's worst problem as stemming from inflated views of one's own importance, abilities, and rights. Buddhism is particularly insistent on this point. We are all prone to exaggerate our own wisdom, competence, sincerity, and power. As Christians, we must avoid this. C.S. Lewis said he knew of no one except Christians who ever admitted to being proud and conceited. The Bible shows us that we must always be on the lookout for this danger. We need to accept what we are not, what we cannot do, which opens us up to being able to rely on others. This sober judgment that verse 3 speaks of means just what we think of as an alternative to drunkenness. To be sober means to be rigorously accurate, completely in touch with reality. We are to think straight about ourselves, neither too low nor too high. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But we have a natural tendency to be self-centered and to elevate ourselves. And so without knowing his name, many of us follow the Greek philosopher Protagoras who said, man is the measure of all things. And we measure our lives and our circumstances and our relationships that way. Whatever's going on in my life, whatever's presented to me is to be judged 
as to whether it's good or bad, not first based upon what God is doing and who God is, but rather first based upon how I perceive it affects me. And our reactions show what we think of ourselves. I'm better. If you think of yourself in contrast or in comparison to others and you think I'm better, it shows what you think of yourself or I deserve better as you think about your circumstances. And the way we think about ourselves affects so many areas of our lives, including the way we see the church, the work of the Lord. We become consumers as we relate to the work of the Lord. Because there's always this emphasis on my needs and my opinions. I must be in control. There's an emphasis on my ability. You must depend on me. There's an emphasis on my accomplishments. I must receive recognition for what I do. And so when we're looking for a church with this kind of consumer mentality, we kind of have a checklist. And maybe some of you have your checklist out today. Maybe you're a guest here today. Now, do I like this place? You know, do I like the way the building looks? Check. What do they have for my kids? Check. Do I like the music? Check. And by the way, those things are all checkable. They're all very good. Do I like the preaching? Nah. <laughs> Jury's out on that. I don't like that pass the hat piece. So we've got this checklist just like you're going to a supermarket. A checklist that is all about what it does for me. Now, we offer all of those things for the edification, the building up of God's people. And it's a great blessing to have all of these things. But when we are first consumers, this all violates the example of our Lord Jesus set forth in Philippians chapter 2. Where the Bible tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then that passage gives the supreme illustration of selflessness and humility, because it goes on to say this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And you remember then it goes on to describe how Christ, who is God, emptied himself to take upon himself the form of humanity. And he became a man, a servant, who ultimately went to the cross for the needs of others. When we fail, friends, to follow the pattern of Christ and we exalt ourselves in any of these forms, the consequences can be devastating. It always impacts other people how it is we view ourselves. When we exalt self, then we view others with jealousy. Or we'll view others through the jaded glasses of judgmental criticism. Or we'll view others with condescension. And the body is harmed. So how should we think about ourselves? Well, what does the Bible say about us? Who are you? Who am I? You know, the Bible teaches we are sinners in rebellion against our Creator. I mean, how highly can you think about that if you really believe that and what is it that the bible says we deserve when we say and we're unhappy and we have a lack of joy in reaction to our circumstances because at the heart of that is i deserve better what does the bible say we deserve so one has said anytime you're in any place other than hell you've gotten more than you deserve 
And Jesus taught that self-denial is the essence of following him, being one of his disciples, didn't he? Here's what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily. And he said very clearly, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so we think differently. And we are to think differently, verse 3 says, about ourselves. But then it tells us in what areas we're to think about ourselves differently. And the first of those I have in your outline. We're to think of ourselves differently in light of the gospel. Think of ourselves differently in light of the gospel. One commentator says we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment, verse 3 says. And we're to do so at the end of verse 3 in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, literally, this says in accordance with the measure of faith that God has distributed. Most people reading this verse have thought that the measure of faith means the amount of faith. That is, the Bible is saying that our opinion of ourselves depends on the amount of faith we have. God having given some people more faith than others. That's the way many read that. But in the context of all that's been said in Romans, that seems quite unlikely. The word measure is the Greek word metron. We get our word meter from it. And it means a standard of measurement, not an amount. In other words, the Bible is saying, all of you have been given your saving faith in Christ crucified, and that's how you're to measure yourselves. That means we need, first of all, to realize that we are all the same. So as I think about myself, I need to do so according to the measure of faith, the faith the belief that we have in the, in the gospel. And so that means now as I look at myself and I look at others, I realize we're all the same. Regardless of our background, our abilities and so on, we're all saved the same way in Christ. God loves us equally in Christ. The gospel prevents us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are sinners and all of our efforts can only earn us judgment. And we're saved entirely by another's kindness, the kindness of God in Christ. And the gospel prevents us thinking in a more lowly way than we ought as well. Because, yes, we are sinners and yes, we deserve hell, but we are saved sinners. We are rescued, we are delivered sinners, and we're loved and valued in the gaze of the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. This then is a direct command to start our self-evaluation by remembering who we are in the gospel. And the first measure by which we evaluate ourselves is the gospel that we believe. You see, friends, if you would just take time, if we would just take time regularly to think about the good news of the gospel and think about what the gospel says we are, but what the Bible says we have become in Christ because of his grace to us. Now we will have an accurate view of ourselves, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And you know what that means? It means that there's something better than character esteem or process esteem. And that something better is Christ esteem. Esteeming Christ and looking to Christ and not looking to ourselves and our performance and how well we do and how good we are. And not looking at our circumstances and comparing and contrasting those to others. It means remembering that in this humble position that we are as creatures and creatures who are in rebellion against God and who deserve God's wrath, 
that despite all of that, all that we have and all that we are is from God. And he has given us this grace. It's not our own accomplishment. We are nothing without him apart from his grace. The scriptures say that what we have and what we are are by his grace. And they've been bestowed upon us to be used for the benefit of others. Not for our own interest or for our own quest for luxury and exaltation. And so verse 3 is teaching in the gospel, in the measure of faith through which we are to see ourselves, we are all the same. But verses 4 through 8 teach that there's a sense in which we are all different. We think differently about ourselves in light of the gospel. But secondly, I say in your outline, we think differently about ourselves in light of our gifts. In light of our gifts. On the one hand, we are all the same. We've all had the same need, come to the same Savior. But on the other hand, verses 4 through 8 are going to tell us how we're different. Verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now at this point, Paul, who wrote this, warns against thinking less of our abilities than is warranted. So in verse 3, don't think too highly of yourselves. But then that could be taken to the point to say, well, then I can't do anything. And verses 4 through 8 are saying, no, God has gifted you. God has gifted you to carry to participate in the carrying out of his work. We need to acknowledge what we're good at and what we can do because doing that makes us able to serve others. So the objective here is not for us to think less of ourselves than we should. With our high opinion that we have naturally, yes, that means we've got to think less. But not just to continually think less of ourselves, but rather to think of ourselves less. Not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. (laughs) Right? You and I think of ourselves too much. Everything is seen in relation to us. How does this affect me? Is this good for me? Is this bad for me? Is this a good deal for me? Is this going to be hard for me? You know, last week I said, look, we all fall prey to this, myself included, in big and small ways. And I told you last week if you were here. You know, I had this wonderful thing going on where I was having this uh, video conference with some pastors from around the country for this church planting network, and then my face comes up on the screen, and my first thought is, man, you got a big face. Well, you know, I had that, I had that same meeting with those same guys this week, and I had this all in my mind that I had said that, and so, you know, I hit the button, camera goes on, and there I am. And I want you to know that I did not think, hey, you've got a big face. But I thought about the fact that I wasn't thinking you've got a big face. (laughs) Which means I'm still thinking about me and my big face. You see how pervasive that is? How in everything we do, we have the potential and for most of us the reality that we're thinking about ourselves. Verses 4 through 8 say God has graciously gifted us. So it's not just to continually think less of ourselves, but think of yourself less. 
And we're given, by way of analogy, the church, the body of Christ, as like the human body that's composed of many parts but put together in a unit. There are fingers or toes and eyes and ears and so on. And we can draw some truths from that analogy. This teaches us a, a few things. One, in the church, we each have positional unity. That our position in Christ is that we are one body. Verse 4 says there is one body, just as each of us has one body with many members. In verse 5 it says that there is one body, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. Now it's interesting that it speaks in terms of the word member, a body part. A body part is assumed to be attached, connected to the rest of the body, and that's why we call it the member. We are assumed to be attached and connected with other believers in organizational unity in the church to carry out the objectives of Jesus. Within the assembly, within the church, we're one, we're united, we have equal standing before Christ. That is, we have this positional unity. But it doesn't mean that we're all the products of spiritual cookie cutters. We're not all alike. And so the passage goes on to say, not only do we have this positional unity, we're connected to each other in the, in the body, but it goes on to say that we have practical diversity. Verse 4 again, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. The word function translates a Greek term from which we get our word practice. It speaks of action. We don't all do the same things. In fact, the Greek title of the book of Acts in your Bible, it's really literally the practice of the apostles, the acts or the deeds of the apostles. We've been brought together to function together, and that presupposes that we have a relationship with one another. In another book in your New Testament, another that this same Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, he describes the church, again, using the analogy of the body. And he asks the question, is everything a hand? Is everything an eye? If in your body everything's an eye, then where is the hearing? There has to be diversity, and so it is in the body of Christ. We can't all be the same. God in his grace brings different people together. We all have different tasks to perform as we function together. And understand, friends, that all the tasks are important. Often we value certain functions because the value is readily obvious. That's true even in our own physical bodies. We value certain functions above others. We think, I'd hate to live without my eyesight, or I'd hate to live as a quadriplegic. And yet there are other members of the body that we don't even think about that are of great value. And so I've heard and you've heard and perhaps said that you value your eyesight, but we've probably never heard anyone express value for their parathyroid glands. In fact, do you even know what a parathyroid gland is? But if they seek to function properly, you'll know. You'll experience extreme discomfort in digestion. You'll begin to build up calcium in your bloodstream. Left untreated, there's a potential for blindness and heart disease. Now, it's like that in the local assembly, the body. There are things that we value. We value the teaching of the Word of God, and that should be the case. But there are many things that go on that make contributions that are equally important. 
We see that which is visible, but how many see all of the thing of those things that are happening because there are volunteers who are helping out in the office? I mean, just take as an example. Every week I get up and I say, take a look at your program. Where'd that thing come from? Somebody had to print that thing. Somebody had to fold it. I say, take out the outline for the message. Somebody had to do that and insert it. She's sitting right here. It's Carolyn Poole. She comes in every Saturday. She spends a few hours doing that for us. It's an invaluable, an invaluable service. But we don't see those kinds of things. So those who work around the church are clean up after everyone has left. How many of us see all that goes on during the week, including those who are just part of a prayer team faithfully praying for you and for the ministry? You know, friends, there is there is a function for everyone. And all of us are to carry out our function in the body. And sometimes we have an attitude like some of you women might see. As one has put it, this family thinks all the laundry is done by the laundry fairy. You drop it in the dirty clothes and the laundry fairy doodly comes in and presto, it's found washed and pressed hanging in the closet. Why do we have the attitude like that when it comes to the church? Remember, friends, there's something for everyone to do. And if you don't have something to do, you're part of the body. And the body is harmed when it is not functioning in all of its parts. And so if you don't have something to do within the body, let the folks know at the information center, give me something to do. We'll contact you this week. The point is there's a role for every single believer to play. In the church we have positional unity, we have practical diversity, but this passage also teaches that we have mutual interdependence on one another. Verse 5 says, each member belongs to all the others. It's saying that the diversity is there because we need each other. So I have gifts you don't have, you have gifts I don't have, and I need what you offer and vice versa. We are all belong to each other because we, we need each other. And this interdependence is seen in this other passage I alluded to earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. Where the Bible says this, If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. The image of the body prevents us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought because we need all the other members of our church and in a more lowly way than we ought as well because the other members of our church need us. 
So thinking about this body imagery says, you know, I need to be part of this body because I'm not all that. And I do need these people. But it also keeps us from thinking too lowly of ourselves because the truth is they need the gifts that God has given me as well. But friends, when we want to just do our own thing, we're saying to the rest of the body, I don't need you. And in the church, we have mutual interdependence. And so we need to think, not individualistically, but congregationally, corporately. Corporate means the body, thinking of the body. That's got to be our mindset. We focus on the good of the body and the contribution that we bring to the body because we all need one another. Verse 6 says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. It's saying this, that God has prepared you to serve within the church. And as we serve within the church, there is to be, it should be obvious, no pride. Because those gifts are not meritorious. Those are gifts of God's grace. And so God, by his grace, gives you whatever gift you have me, whatever gift I have. And that's why the admonition then is given as these gifts are listed now to use it in proportion to faith. That, that is, use it in proportion to the fact that you've been given this because of the gospel. The same measure that we saw back in, in verse 3. So where is it that you're supposed to serve? Well, I don't know precisely. And some of you, I don't, I'm not trying to make you feel unnecessarily guilty. I'm glad to make you feel necessarily guilty. That is, for those who should feel guilty, feel guilty and then act on it. But then there are some who should not. There are some who would like to do things that they just can't do. Just unable to do because of your phase of life or because of some things that are going on. So it's not my purpose to heap unnecessary guilt on you. Here's a good way to think of service. Service is where opportunity and ability meet. That is, there's the opportunity to serve. But then I have, both in my giftedness and in God's providence, the ability to serve in that area. You may or may not, either because of giftedness or because of God's providence in what's happening in your life. But one of the ways we will know that we are operating in this selfless way is in how we react to the things that we see. Just think to yourself, don't want any raised hands here, but how many of you are professional critics of what other people do? If you notice something that's not to your liking, something askew, well, maybe you notice that because you have a passion for that. You have an interest in that. So rather than complain about it, here, let me make a suggestion. Volunteer to make it better. So we must serve, this passage is telling us, because we are all interdependent in the body, and the body needs us, and we need the body. And then verses 6, 7, and 8 tell us this, middle of verse 6. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. Teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then encourage. Giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Now, in our remaining time, out of that, I think there are a number of truths that we can see. The first one is this, that service is not optional. And the way those 
statements are made. It's saying, if it's this gift, then do it. If you have the ability to teach, then you're commanded to use that ability. He's saying that you just use what you have. Service is not optional. Roll up your sleeves and meet needs. So service is not optional. Also, that service must be consistent with the Bible. Verse 6 says, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. That can be translated in agreement with the faith. The faith is an expression that the Bible uses to describe biblical truth. It's saying, let him use his gift consistent with biblical truth. And so if someone is proclaiming, prophesying, teaching, preaching, what they say has to be consistent with the faith. So it has to be consistent with the Bible. Thirdly, service is to be wholehearted. Wholehearted. If it's contributing to the needs of others, then give generously. The word generously means it means singleness. The idea is that there's no mixed motives. Giving is designed to exclusively meet the needs of the body and to give wholeheartedly in doing so. And then lastly, service is to be enthusiastic. The last of these gifts in verse 8, if it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. We get a good English word from the Greek term that's translated cheerfully. The Greek word is hilarion. We get hilarious from it. If it's showing mercy, let him do it with hilarity. It's a strong word that emphasizes the enthusiasm of one's work. And yet, let's think about it. Enthusiasm isn't normally what we think of as something able to be commanded. We tell our children, clean your room and do it enthusiastically? How is it that the Bible can command enthusiasm? Here's the key. When we obey the whole of the message and we divest ourselves of personal interest, when we make sure that we're single-mindedly focused on serving the needs of the body, and that's our goal, then that's what excites us. When our ambition and our desire is the building up of the body, then when the body is built up, it produces an excitement and enthusiasm For ministry. And so I ask you friends. Do the needs of the team. Do the needs of the body drive you? There's no room for free agents. In the body of Christ. Christians do not live for themselves. But we live for the body. Because we've been designed to be servants. As part of the body. As part of the team. Christians think differently. Christians think differently about themselves, and in turn, that causes them to think differently about others. And that's what verses 9 through 21 tell us. Now, remember I said I probably wouldn't get there? I didn't. So we will pick that up next week. Let's ask the Lord to help us this week as we practice what he has taught us from his word. Father, We thank you again for the sacred privilege of being able to gather to open your word and to be taught about your mercies. Lord, your mercies are all found in the good news that's centered on the person and work of Jesus. And in view of your mercies, you tell us that it is our reasonable response for us to give ourselves as living sacrifices to you, holy and acceptable. And you tell us that those who have been saved, rescued, delivered are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the way we think. 
And then you tell us, Lord, that that thinking begins with how we see you and how we see ourselves. We see you as most valuable and therefore we offer our bodies to you as a living sacrifice. And we see ourselves accurately, not too high and not too low. We see ourselves as made in your image and fearfully and wonderfully made. We see ourselves as gifted by you to serve the body. But we do not see ourselves in the way we used to. And always thinking about ourselves and relating everything to how it affects us. Not too high, not too low. Thank you, Lord, for this accurate view of ourselves that then translates into the joy we have in our circumstances, the motivation we have in carrying out your work and using the gifts that you've given for the purpose for which you have given them. And thank you, Lord, that it transforms the way we see others. We ask you, Lord, to help us this week as your people to see ourselves as the recipients of your grace given to us in Jesus on the cross and then given to us in the gifts of the spirit that he allows us to use in the body. And help some here, Lord, to make the decision that I'm going to get off the sidelines. That I'm going to be part of the body. I'm going to be part of the team. I need the body and the body needs me. And I pray, Lord, that as we function together as eyes and ears and hands and mouths and feet and all the parts of the body, as we function here that way, that you will move your church forward. You will move it in a way in, in, in which we mutually build up and edify one another. And the people come here and see an enthusiasm for the carrying out of the work of the Lord. And they see a love for one another because of the transformed way we see each other. And by this will all men know that we are your disciples because we love one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.